Few countries in transition have managed to get a grip on their public finances as well as South Africa did after 1994. Now, just more than 20 years later, the nation's credibility and the democratic project lie in tatters as we teeter on the brink of a political and fiscal cliff. Business confidence and investment have evaporated, along with clean, accountable government, causing South Africa to be downgraded to junk status, crushing the country's growth potential and pushing it towards a debt trap. How did we land up in this mess and can we pull back from the brink? The consensus among private economists is that South Africa's overwhelming priority has to be job creation. This means that existing businesses will have to grow and invest, and many more new businesses will have to be created. Claire tells us about some of the economic reforms she addresses in the book that could see the country's economic growth improve. So the book unpacks in a fairly clear and accessible style the factors that have brought the economy to its current dire predicament. And it looks at the the recipes to get growth going. And there's, there's a classical recipe from the National Treasury. They're, um, they're in more innovative ways that have also been suggested by various people. And it, it looks at some of, some, some of those. So there's a, a whole range of measures. Um, and then I've got my own views, which would also come into the book uh, in addition to those. So one of the key messages from the book is that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. The economic solutions are actually quite straightforward and proven to have worked in other parts of the world, we also have a national development plan which sets out the key constraints to, to business. So it's, it's a matter of um, really going back to those six constraints against, um, against growth that were set out in Asgisa in 2006. So since then, we haven't really discovered anything new about the constraints binding growth. The same old things that were as binding then are even more binding now. A large part of the remedy in the, in the National Development Plan is act, actually tackling those growth constraints. And those are things like the skilled labour shortage. Study after study has shown that if you allowed skilled immigration, the level of wages and the job opportunities for locals would actually rise. So that's, in the short term, a very quick way to boost growth. You also have to raise your own education standards because you, you need a longer-term solution to, to importing scarce skills. So you've got to do both. But that is one of the, the, the sort of top priorities that is always listed among business is that there's a scarce labour shortage for, of scarce skills. And that is, that is actually a constraint on our growth potential. So that's, that's one of the first things that always comes up. Another thing that always comes up, it was there with Askisa and it is there in the NDP and it is there now, is the, the lack of a, a cost-effective national logistics system. So that's talking about port and rail. It's talking about the cost of broadband things like that. The other classic lever to pull is to raise the investment rate. So ours is about 19% of GDP. The Growth Commission, which was chaired by Michael Spence, was an inter he's a Nobel laureate, it was an international commission that looked at 13 countries around the world to find out the secret of their fast growth. And it found that no country has managed to sustain fast growth without rates of investment above 25% of GDP we're sitting with about 19. So we have got to raise the rate of investment. And that means we've got to be welcoming to investors. It talks to the lowering the cost of business. It talks about the business case. It talks about making the country a friendly place to do business. And that's where, where government has really failed in its hostile attitudes to the business sector. Three things in a nutshell, the skilled labor shortage, raising the investment rate, 
and tacking the, the national logistics system are the sort of classic three items in any recipe. Obviously, we need a political solution before you can, can do anything because we can't progress without confidence. So the return of confidence is a prerequisite for growth. That needs a new leadership. You're not going to get it with the current leadership. Business has no confidence in the Zuma administration. So the first step is clearing out Zuma and his, and his thugs and his cronies from positions of power. A new leadership in which society and business can have confidence. So once we've got the political situation sorted, assuming we've got the politi political situation sorted, confidence returns. But you would need to do a couple of things simultaneously. You need um, a social accord, and I think that's different from an economics cadessa. You don't want a reinvention of the NDP. We don't have the luxury of time to spend another three years devising an economic plan. The country can't afford a prolonged period of low growth. We're fiscally really up against the wall, so we've got to move. So a social accord would be about values, what, what underpins us as a society, where do we want to be as a society, and it would, its most important role would be to determine a national priority. What is our national obsession? And that could be youth unemployment, it could be getting rid of corruption, but I think that, that is really just the first step. I think it would probably have to be something like creating jobs or tackling youth unemployment. Those have got to be our, our national obsession and fixing the education system. So we, that would be the goal of the social accord, is to work out what our national priorities and agenda should be. The, the second big thing that would have to happen simultaneously is to fix up the state of the, of the civil service. Government has got to tackle corruption and accountability at the same time. Having a clean government that can't deliver is also useless, as useless as having a corrupt government that, that can't deliver. And that talks to cadre deployment, talks to, to pointing people on, on the grounds of merit and actual accountability in government. So bad performance and non-performance results in consequences from the principal right up to the cabinet minister. Um, because until we get that right, nothing is going to get better. And then tackling the six growth constraints identified in Eskisa that I, that I mentioned, that is all about um, the, the skills constraint. It's about deregulating the environment for small businesses so you can get more labour absorption in your economy. It's about raising competition in the private sector, so that's all about busting cartels. And also in the SOE sector, state-owned enterprises are our most inefficient monopolies in the country. That has got to be got to be tackled. So the recipe sounds long, but it comes down to restoring confidence and accountability in government. What role does business and business leadership play in the South African story? Have we as citizens been critical enough of the private sector and how it conducts itself? Claire shares her thoughts. So I'm quite critical of business in the book. There is a whole chapter on the dysfunctional relationship between government and business. I think business has been extremely slow to act against state capture. They've mismanaged their relationship with government. They've played nice in an attempt to win trust. And in, in the end, they ended up being completely outplayed by, by Zuma. While they were busy being completely absorbed in technical plans and technical solutions, the government was, was busy running a state capture project right under their nose that was, it was hollowing out the very institutions on which the free market depended. And business didn't, didn't see it coming. They, in a sense, walked into the situation completely blindfolded. 
And then Gordon was fired after everything that had been that had been put into the relationship and shoring up our, our credit rating. It was the rug was pulled out of, from under business. Business has subsequently realised that it that it was played, and it has taken a very hard look at itself and its position, and it has changed. So we've seen a big shift in business leadership, South Africa particularly. They're, they've now become outspoken. They're taking the public into their confidence. They've separately got together with Kasatu at a two-day meeting. So there's a real attempt by business and labor to find each other over the issue of state capture. Recently, business leadership has backed Kasatu's march on against corruption. And this is actually hugely significant because if business and labor can work together, they can discover that the other side is not the devil they thought it was. So you start getting trust and relationships built and understanding of, of the other's position. And that is really the first step to cooperation on other issues. I'm very encouraged by that development and I think we shouldn't underplay its significance in the, in the broader scheme of things. So business has stepped up to the plate recently. It could have backed off completely after, after Gordon was fired and it did for a while. It refused to meet Gagaba. It's licked its wounds. But it came back stronger. It said we will carry on with the small business venture capital fund. That's the one and a half billion rand fund that it set up to mentor small businesses and change the whole ecosystem of venture capital for small businesses, which, if it works in time, could move the needle on growth. The other big thing that they've backed is the youth employment service. And that's a 50 billion rand undertaking, which is significant amounts of money. And it, it also translates into significant job creation. So if you're a firm of a thousand people and you have 10% attrition a year, it would mean you've got to employ a hundred new people a year. That business under this scheme would also have to employ another 30 interns that it didn't need every year, over above the hundred people it needs. That's a big ask in an economy that's not growing. So it shouldn't be underestimated what businesses come to the table with in a, in a stagnant economy. South Africa has long been plagued by deep-seated inefficiencies that are preventing the kind of economic growth we need. As much as South Africans think they understand what is needed, debates are often riddled with misconceptions about the economy. Claire elaborates on some of the myths that have crept into the lexicon of contemporary South Africa. Okay, the first one is, is I think, something which, with a lot of people feel at the moment because the mood in the economy is so depressed, and that is that our main economic challenges of unemployment and poverty and inequality are so deep-seated, and we've made so little progress in addressing them in the past 20 years, that they seem insurmountable. And because of that, the view amongst a lot of people is that it's just a matter of time before South Africa becomes a failed state. So I looked at that quite seriously, and I looked at, at unemployment, I look at the, the levels of unemployment, how, it's, how sticky it is, I look at inequality, and I look at poverty, and I look at these indicators in some detail. Conclusion that I reach is that we've made so little progress defeating these, these issues because we've never implemented a growth plan in this country. So you talk about populist policies having gained ascendancy. It's, it's because we've made so little progress that populist policies are now Seeming, seeming, seemingly attractive. But in fact, we haven't actually ever implemented orthodox policies. And that brings me back to what I was saying earlier about um, Esgisa not having actually tackled any of the growth constraints. And the growth constraints that we identified 10 years ago are the same growth constraints 
that we're battling with now, only they've got worse. And we, we, now, we now say, well, well, the classic policies didn't work. We never implemented them. We never tried. And they've worked around the world. Why wouldn't they work here? So my conclusion on that, that part of the book is that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. The economic policies are quite straightforward. They're proven. Economics is not rocket science. We know what works, but we have to have a policy and a program of execution, and that in turn requires leadership. The other issue I deal with in the, in the myths chapter is this idea that the National Development Plan is, is a completely pie-in-the-sky um, wish list of projects. It's 500 pages long, it's 15 chapters, contains hundreds and hundreds of recommendations. It's all uncosted. It's impractical, it's unworkable, and it can never be implemented. And even if it could be, politically it's stone dead and cannot be revived. I interviewed Lungisa Fuzile, who was the Director General of the Treasury from Manuel's day. He served under Manuel, Gordon, Nene, and also under Gigaba for the first five weeks. Lungisa felt that Gigaba's support for the National Development Plan was genuine. He also said that he didn't think it was stone dead. He reminded me that nearly all political parties supported the NDP, that it had massive support across civil society, and he didn't think it would be difficult to put energy behind it and resuscitate it. And then I looked at the NDP, and the NDP's just got three priorities, and that is all about jobs and growth and fixing the state, fixing the capability of the state, getting the state working again, and that is all about accountability. On education, the NDP says, if you just devolved authority to the principal, you could fix 60% of the problems in education. And that blew me away, because what it's saying is that we don't need costly interventions. We need to fix our lines of accountability. Because if the principal is responsible for the behavior of his teachers, he's going to crack the whip. If the teachers are responsible for the behavior of their pupils, They've got to be at school. They've got to be there on time. They've got to be teaching. It's a real back-to-basics kind of approach. Um, so the idea that we need new, fancy, innovative policies, although innovation and experimentation is, is sorely lacking, we also desperately need to get the basics right. And for the state, that is the big, the big national obsession for government has got to be this relentless focus on, on, on back-to-basics. Another thing I deal with in the, in the myths chapter, would a wealth tax solve inequality. And my argument is not against a wealth tax. Probably the most shocking statistic in the book is, is the revelation that we have near perfect wealth inequality in South Africa. 10% of the population own 95% of the wealth, which is mind-boggling. It means that in 20 years since the end of the apartheid, nothing has really changed on the wealth front at all, despite the rise of the black middle class. A wealth tax is a no-brainer. The problem is that the government is so poor at turning wealth into well-being for its citizens that if you give the tax to the government, the money doesn't translate into better social outcomes. And you see it in education. We spend more proportionally on education than many African countries, and yet our education outcomes are rock bottom. So throwing more money at education doesn't translate into better outcomes because the quality of that public service provision is so poor our poor kids may as well be living in, in Guatemala and Nicaragua and El Salvador, the poorest Latin American countries. That's where our educational attainment is on a par with. There, there is this sort of subtext in this country that fiscal policy 
hasn't reduced inequality because it's not progressive enough. And that's the same thing. The subtext there is national treasury has stood in the way of, of development because it's been too tight with the purse strings. That is a myth that needs to be bust conclusively because it, that myth is how people like Pravin Gordon and, and Sabisi Jonas ended up getting fired. National Treasury is blocking development, it's blocking transformation. And the book, although it's heavily opinionated, is also heavily research-based. What I try to do in every aspect of the book is to present factual evidence based on academic research supporting the contentions I put forward. So there are studies which the World Bank has done which found that South Africa was the best out of 11 emerging market countries, including Brazil and Mexico and Indonesia Malaysia, at using fiscal policy to reduce poverty and inequality. We were the best by far of any other emerging market country. And yet you still have the myth that it's the Treasury's fault that we don't make progress on these, on these issues. So coming back to the wealth tax, if government is... is if social grants have been very effective at reducing inequality and poverty, but the quality of government's social spending on healthcare, on education, on other social spending items, it is, it is so, so poor at de delivering upward mobility and opportunity for poor people. Do we really want to have a wealth tax that just delivers more tax into a, into a government that can't, can't confer change? Mm -hmm. I talk about a national minimum wage and whether it will help reduce poverty and inequality. Conclusion is that it will reduce working inequality for people with jobs. It narrows the gap between the top earners and the lower earners. So that reduction in inequality within the firm could, could boost trust in the firm, productivity in the firm, understanding in the firm. So it's, it's, it could be a very good thing. And obviously it's, 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 a, it's a welfare benefit. For about 4 million people, they would be earning 1,000 Rand more a month. So that's a significant boost for the working poor. The problem is it widens the gap between those who are unemployed and those who are already with work. So it, it, it creates an even greater distance for the unemployed to travel because the entry-level wage is now higher, so they're even less likely to get a job. And my big point in this chapter is that the youth wage subsidy that was so successful in creating 600,000 jobs in the first two years for first-time entrance into the labour market by subsidising their cost of employment. Gives about a thousand rand subsidy to a, to a factory per year for, for first-time entrants aged about 18 to 29. So a thousand rand a month subsidy to the employer is a significant reduction in the wage. The result was that 600,000 jobs were created for young people. Now the national minimum wage does the complete opposite. The youth wage subsidy makes it easier for firms and cheaper for firms to hire entry-level workers. The national minimum wage raises the entry-level wage for 47% of South Africa's workforce. The cost structure of half the workforce is going to go up. And if the youth wage subsidy taught us that reducing the entry wage results in higher employment, what does, the, what does that tell us that the national minimum wage is going to do? It's going to disincentivize employment of young people. So the two policies are complete loggerheads. And what is worse is that the youth wage subsidy will expire in 2019. And the national minimum wage, which is supposed to come into effect in the middle of 2018, will probably, given the institutional requirements that have to still be set up and the legislation that has to be passed in Parliament, will probably come into effect in 2019, just as the youth wage subsidy is expiring. And nobody seems to have realised this. 
that the one policy comes into effect as the other one expires, and the hit to youth unemployment could be devastating in an election year. It's got to make you wonder what is going to happen to the national minimum wage, whether it will actually be implemented as planned, whether it's going to get pushed out, whether the levels are going to be changed, whether they're going to be carve-outs for youth unemployment, as they should be. I think there's got to be carve-outs for the youth. And that's, those are the sort of issues that, that would have to come up if society formed a social accord and said our national priority is youth unemployment. This is why we need, it's our national obsession to be youth unemployment, so we can look at these kinds of issues with a different lens and say, what, is, what has to be done to actually create jobs for young people? So that's, that's that, you know, that chapter tries to, to deal with those sorts of issues. And I think, for, for me, that's my favorite chapter in the book. I rewrote it over and over and over again. Even at the editing stage, I was changing that chapter, moving things around, trying to really understand how problems of poverty, inequality, and, and unemployment, and why they were so intractable. Mm and whether we could actually make progress on those fronts. Um, and the conclusion is yes, we absolutely can. The right leadership and the right policies, business pulling behind government in partnership, we could achieve great things. As we head towards a general election in 2019, and before that, the ruling African National Congress's elective conference in December, questions surrounding the country's political leadership have been placed in sharp focus. Claire spends some time exploring the issue of leadership in South Africa across all sectors, business, politics, and civil society. So the book is unequivocal that um, the current leadership is not going to be able to change tack in this country. We need a government that can change tack decisively, that acknowledges that state-led development is failing, and that the future is in a partnership with the private sector. I don't think anybody believes that the Zuma administration or the Zuma faction um, has the ability to raise confidence in the economy or the ability to get the economy growing. So we need a clean sweep in leadership in the ANC. And if we don't get that in December this year at the ANC elective conference, then the next opportunity is the election in 2019. I think if Cyril Ramaphosa or an anti-Zuma faction that came in on a on a a clean government, pro-business ticket came in, I think it would, there would be a, a huge surge in confidence. I think the rand would strengthen. Um, I think investment would be unlocked. We know there's about a trillion rand sitting on corporate balance sheets in the form of cash surpluses, dammed up, waiting to be invested. So you could see <clears throat> your kind of euphoria in the country. Consumers have also held back spending. There's about 200 billion held back in consumer spending. So the potential for a bounce, economic bounce, growth spurt is, is, is there, should you have the right leadership come in. There isn't a lot of optimism about that. There's, there's, a, there's huge cynicism and a belief that Zuma and his proxy will, will come in, come hell or high water. And then it's a, it's a case of things getting worse before they get better. Business is, is really waking up to the challenges. And Labour came to the party in Nedlac last year in the negotiations on labour reform, labour stability measures. They really came together with business and there was a lot of really fruitful and constructive discussion. And the final package of measures that was agreed to, which included um, secret strike balloting, was a significant concession from Labour. If those reforms are honoured in, in, in actual implementation, could do a lot to calm labour tension. So 
leadership it's not what we, what we would have hoped. We would have wished for stronger candidates, stronger anti-Zuma candidates. We have what we've got. The conclusion of the book is everything hangs on constructive, authentic, honest leadership at all levels. Civil society has been impressive. Zipa Pachana has really stood up to the plate. And you even see it in mining now. Mining has, has really found its, its voice. They're... they're been quite strategic about it as well. They've decided they can't work with the Mineral Resources Minister, so they're negotiating their own charter with Labour and civil society, which was a clever move, actually, because if business, Labour and civil society agree on their own mining charter, government's out in the cold. And that's the sort of strategic thinking I was talking about that's been missing from business all along, and it's finally starting to understand the rules of the game. There is hope. I really think that... Um, but civil society is coalescing around a whole program of values. I think business and labour are trying to find each other. And I think that the society as a whole is creating a strong momentum for positive change in the right direction. And that pressure is being felt by the ANC. And if they, if they don't do the right thing in December, they're going to be facing a situation in 2019 where they could lose the majority, where their popularity could fall below 50% for the first time, and we could see coalition governments being formed. When all is said and done, we need to ask, will we have a South Africa left to fight for? Is it too late for us to claw ourselves back from the edge of the cliff? Claire remains optimistic, which she shares in the book. The book says that we're, we're on a knife edge, we're on the cliff face. The fiscal crisis is no longer looming. The fiscal crisis is here and now. Don't underestimate how dangerous things are. Just because I, I think things could have a positive outcome, not necessarily a negative one, doesn't mean I don't think that the situation is really desperate. But it's never too late to pull back from the brink. It's, it's never the end game. It's never Armageddon. For countries, it never is. And I was thinking about Rwanda recently, how who could have imagined a couple of years ago that Rwanda would suddenly be the poster child for economic progress and reform on the continent? You tend to, I think, human beings tend to extrapolate linearly from their sour mood, their pessimistic mood, the depression that they're in now, and they tend to draw a straight line into the future and say things will be equally bad in the future or worse. That's sort of human nature to draw a straight line. But the future doesn't work like that. The future is not an extension of the present in, in a linear sense. And I was... You know, thinking about Mandela, the Rubicon speech in 1985 when PW failed to cross the Rubicon. Who could have imagined that by 94, Mandela would be president? If, if the future was a straight line from where we are now, that would not have happened. Countries never end. There is, there is never an end game. There is always an opportunity to turn things around. And um, as unlikely as it may seem now, there are a couple of reasons not to be completely and utterly depressed. Um, the one is the, the trillion rand sitting on corporate balance sheets waiting to be invested. The other is the fact that the NDP, although it may appear stone dead, is in fact a national asset. It takes five years to develop a national development plan. We have one already that we have never implemented. And there was massive consensus around that document. It wouldn't be hard to build that consensus again. There's optimism around the, the tunadering between business and labour. There's optimism around that voice that civil society has found for itself. So 
all is not lost. Times are very challenging, but it could all turn on a dime.